Yeah, I don't know if I'm more excited to preach right now or that I get to take my mask off. <laughs> so I'll, uh, I'll try not to gloat for those of you that uh, are still out there wearing a mask. <laughs> um, we're in Galatians chapter 5 today, making our way through, uh, through Galatians. Um, and coincidentally, like we didn't, we didn't plan this, but, but our, our passage today has to do with freedom. And it's just kind of where, where the text fell on uh, the time of year where we celebrate our freedom and our independence uh, as Americans. I just want to read something to you that's probably going to sound familiar. This is uh, Abraham Lincoln, and, and you probably are going to know what this is. It says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles, organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and their happiness. So as we consider, that was from the Declaration of Independence, by the way, as we consider this weekend of all times throughout the year our freedom, it's imperative that we understand the freedom that's given to us by Christ, and it's not the same kind of freedom that's given to us by our nation. Now, I'm grateful to live where I live, I'm grateful for the rights that we have that I get to exercise every day. I'm thankful to be an American. I'm thankful uh, for what our flag stands for. I'm thankful for people who have done for me what I haven't done for myself. I'm thankful that, that people have served in our military and have fought wars so that I can stand here today without threat uh, of anybody busting down the door telling me to stop saying what I'm about to say. I'm grateful for that, and you should be grateful for that as well, and I have no doubt uh, that you are. But, but we have to understand, and what I hope that we're going to understand today is that, that Christ has purchased for us a freedom that's far greater than the freedom that we enjoy because of the place that we live. People that live in other parts of the world don't enjoy the freedoms necessarily that, that we enjoy. That being said, again, it's imperative that we understand that, that Christ has done for us something that no man or no woman could ever do, that, that nobody could fight hard enough to secure except for Christ himself. And so that's what I hope that we're going to see today. Our American freedom says that we have the right to life and to liberty and to the pursuit of happiness. And again, so grateful that we have that written in a document that says that that is our right. But American freedom will tell us that it's the government's job to protect these rights. And I think the Bible would, would probably agree that it is the government's job uh, to an extent to protect those rights. But our American freedom also tells us that when those rights become impeded, that it's time to rise up and it's time to fight. And, and the Bible might say something a little bit different. The Christian version of freedom, Jesus himself says in, in John chapter 14 that, that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Not, not a way, not a truth, not a life, but the way, meaning one way, 
the truth, meaning one truth, and the life, meaning one life. And we know that Christ gave his life so that you and I could experience the life that he claims to be. So as we think about that, as we head into Galatians chapter 5, last time Pastor David uh, stopped at Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. He, he talked about in Galatians chapter 4, contrasting uh, the free woman, Sarah, the slave woman, Hagar. If you didn't get a chance to listen to it, it's online. You can go back and, and listen to it. And contrasted this idea of freedom versus slavery. And in Galatians 5, 1, it says that for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And if we were to just stop there, and we're not stopping there, thankfully, but if we were to just stop there, that, that might sound a lot like the American notion of freedom. We, we've been set free to, to enjoy the things that we enjoy. We, we've been set free so maybe for some that we can go out in public and not have to wear a mask. Right? We, we've been set free so that we can enjoy the rights that we have, but, but Paul doesn't stop there in Galatians. He, he goes on, and that's what we're going to look at today. And so I want to look today at how we can misappropriate the freedom given to us by God. And so Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And we'll pause right there for a moment. As you probably know, if you've been with us through uh, any of our study through Galatians, uh, you, you know what Paul is combating here. Paul, Paul had come into the region of Galatia, and he had proclaimed the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaimed the truth. Churches were established, and it didn't take very long after Paul had left for these people to come in behind him, called the Judaizers. And what the Judaizers would do is that they would come in and say, no, no, it's not just the gospel that Paul preached. But, but you also have to take on this mark of circumcision. So in other words, it, it's not just the truth of the gospel, but you also have to do something to find favor with God or to earn God's favor, to score points with God. And, and so the whole reason for Paul's letter to the Galatians is to combat this idea that, that you don't have to do anything because it's already been done for you by Christ. And so as he's talking to these people who uh, are eagerly accepting the mark of circumcision, and circumcision, we're not going to get into all of that today, but it was established in the Old Testament uh, under uh, Abraham that, that God would, would give to them as a sign to mark those who belonged to God, the people of God. And, and very quickly, even in Abraham's day, it became kind of more, more of a duty than it was a privilege to accept the mark of circumcision. And we have to understand that, that our bent as humans is to try to do for ourselves, especially as, as those in the West, right? We, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Nobody can tell me that I can't earn something. 
And if you tell me that I can't do something, I'm probably going to do it just to prove you wrong. Not because I want to or need to, but just to throw it back in your face. And that, that's our bent. That's our bent as, as humans, and particularly humans in the West. And so, so Paul is telling them that if you accept circumcision, that Christ will be of no advantage. And what he's not saying is that circumcision was this evil thing. He wasn't saying that at all, because again, God instituted circumcision way, way back in the day. What Paul is saying is that, that if you accept circumcision, if you do this thing thinking that it's going to draw you closer to God, thinking that it's going to score you points with God, you're missing the point entirely of the gospel. And so I would call this antithetical freedom. It's the opposite of freedom. It's the opposite of freedom. Paul in 5.1 says, why would you go back to a yoke of slavery? When you get into this mode of thinking that you need to do for God so that he will do for you, that's a rough way to live. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Maybe some of you have lived that way because you have to ask the logical question, then how much is enough? If I live in a way that says that I need to do for God so God will do for me, what happens when God isn't doing for me what I want him to do? Is it my fault? Have I not done enough? Have I not done the right things? Is it God's fault? Did he let me down? Did he not see what I did over here for him? It's a hard way to live. Paul goes on to say that, that for every man who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, if you live a life based on law keeping, I'll do for God so that God does for me. You have to keep the entirety of the law in order for that to be effective. And, and, and I'll just ask you, like, how fast did you drive to get here this morning? <laughs> you just, you blew it. You blew it on your way here this morning. What, what was the conversation that you had in the car with your family on your way here this morning? Right? So, sometimes Sunday mornings, like, the biggest fights happen, don't they? You, you just blew it. You, you didn't keep the entirety of the law. Maybe yesterday you did a good deed for somebody, but today you just you just blew it. And this is what Paul is saying, that, that if you live in a manner that says, I need, to, I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps, you've got to do it all. And again, what a, what a difficult way to live. He goes on to say that, that you're actually severed from Christ if you look to the law for your justification. You're severed from Christ. This, again, antithetical freedom. This is the opposite of grace. The biblical idea of grace is that something has been done for you that you couldn't achieve, that you couldn't earn, that you couldn't do for yourself. And Paul says in our bent to be law keepers, in our bent to do for God, we're actually further severing ourselves from Christ. We're going in the opposite direction of grace. That's not very good news, is it? Gospel is a word that means good news, literally means good news. This is not good news, what Paul is delivering to the Galatians with regard to their keeping of the law. As a matter of fact, it's, it's bad news. It's, it's terrible, terrible news. Fortunately, the news gets better in verse 5. He says that through by the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. There's an Old Testament term for God called Jehovah Sidkenu. And what that means is that God is my righteousness. This idea of God being our righteousness is, is not introduced into the New Testament with, with Christ when Christ came onto the scene. This is an Old Testament idea that, that goes way back in the Bible, that, that God is our righteousness. 
And why would it be that this is a name of God, that he's our righteousness? The reason that, that God has that name, one of many, is because we're not righteous in and of ourselves. And all we have to do is go back to the very beginning of the Bible to see that this is true. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, God created everything, created the entire heavens, created the earth, the bugs, the fish, the birds, the sea, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of it. And at the pinnacle of creation, he he creates mankind, he creates Adam and he creates Eve. And he gives them this command after he creates them. Do you remember what it is? He says to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. In other words, like take care of all this, all this, this vastness that I've created. Take care of it. Everything's yours. It's for your enjoyment. It's for your good. It's for your pleasure. Just don't eat the fruit of this one particular tree over here. And you know the story, right? They, they went and, and did the thing, the one thing that God said not to do. So everything's yours. Everything's for your good, for your enjoyment, for your pleasure. Everything except this one thing. And then all of a sudden they're drawn to this one thing. Because we're rebellious as a people. And because Adam and Eve did this thing, then sin nature is now inherent to what we've inherited this bent towards rebellion from Adam and Eve. Way back at the beginning of of time as we know it. And it runs through humanity. But Paul reminds us here in Galatians 5, 5 that, that it's God who is our righteousness. Righteousness is not up to me to attain. It's not up to me to achieve. And thank goodness, because I, I blow that every single day. That may shock you to know that. Maybe some, some days even more than once. Multiple times, sometimes in a day. And, and that, doesn't, that doesn't count like if you could hear the things that go on in my head. Right, Just based on the things that I say and do, I blow it every day. But if you could get inside my head, like it's a, it's a moment by a moment thing. And so Paul is reminding us that, that it's God who is our righteousness. And, and by the Spirit in us that, that, we're, that is given to us when we come to faith in Christ, that Spirit keeps us. And that Spirit in us reminds us where our righteousness comes from. And, and not in a condemning sort of a way. Right? I'm not standing up here saying, oh, oh, woe is me, I'm not righteous. I, I can fully recognize my own flaws and my own sinfulness. But, but I can also fully recognize that I have a righteousness that comes from outside of me. And it has nothing to do with me. If it were up to me to attain it, then it would be up to me to maintain it. And, and, and I know, like, I'll get home this afternoon and realize, like, I, I blew it again today. And so through the Spirit, we eagerly await for our righteousness to be fully realized in Christ. There, there are so many things with respect to Christ that, that we would say are already and not yet. Right? We're, we're already declared righteous. When the verdict of justification by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone came handed down, we were declared fully righteous, yet we, we live on this earth as sinner and saint. And there's going to come a day when, when our righteousness is fully realized. The day that we stand face to face with our Creator. And between now and then, God gives us His Spirit to keep us. To remind us of the hope that we have of our righteousness. 
Paul goes on to say in verse 6 that, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith working through love. Anything other than faith working through love is an antithetical freedom. It's an opposite of freedom. We think that we're most free when we can do whatever we want. Do we not? We think that we're most free when there's nobody to tell us what we can and can't do. But what Paul is telling us here, that that's no freedom at all. We'll unpack this idea a little bit more, but it, it's no freedom at all. The only true freedom is faith in us, and that, and that faith that's in us, it's not even ours. It's given to us by Christ himself. Faith in us working through love. If your faith, quote-unquote faith, if your faith results in driving you towards more law-keeping, I think the Bible would argue that that's, that's not a genuine faith in Christ. It's a faith in something, but, but it's not a faith in Christ. The gospel tells us that we cannot keep enough law to earn God's favor. In other words, we can't be good enough. We can't be good enough to stand before God one day and say, look at all these things I've done in my life. Even somebody, for example, like Mother Teresa, right, known for committing a life to serving others. Mother Teresa cannot stand before God and say, God, look at all of the people that I helped. You owe me. Can't do it. And if she can't do it, then what does that mean for you and I? The good news of the gospel tells us that, that Jesus Christ has done for us what you and I could and would never do for ourselves. In other words, even if we could, even if we could be good enough, which we can't, but let's just say for the sake of argument that we could. Even if we could, the Bible says that we wouldn't. We wouldn't do it because of this sin nature that we have inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus did for us what we could and would never do for ourselves, namely that he lived a life that we're incapable of living. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to his father. And not only did he live the life that we're incapable of living, he died a death of which we all deserve. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion, we deserve to die. We don't deserve to live. That's bad news. But the good news is, is that, that Jesus lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that you and I rightfully and justly deserved. So that, as he calls us to faith in him, that we would look for him who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived righteously. He lived perfectly. He lived sin-free. He lived a life that was outward-facing. He lived a life not of self-serving freedom. And if there were ever anybody that could live a life of self-serving freedom, Christ would be capable. But he didn't. He, he lived an outward-facing life. So that as you and I look to him, that we could be counted as righteousness, as righteous, not based on our own merits, but based on his merits. And this is, this is what Paul is combating. And he's reminding the Galatians that it's antithetical 
to freedom to have any other view. It's the opposite of freedom to think in any other way. The thing that matters as it pertains to our faith is that our faith works itself out, not in a self-serving manner, not to protect my rights, not to protect my freedoms, but that my faith works out of my life and your life in a way that's outward facing. That it works out in love. Not love for me, but love for those outside of me. Verses 7 to 12. Paul says that you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed, and I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. These are harsh words from Paul. He says that you were, you were running well, you, you were doing well when you initially responded to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that says he's done for you what you could and would never do for yourself. Leave it there. That, that race, you would do well to run that race. That race has a path that's flat. It's paved. The, the wind is at your back. You've got shade. That, that, that's, that's a leisurely stroll. Paul says that you, you were running well. But who hindered you from obeying the truth? These people, as I said, came in behind Paul and said, here's this other thing that you need to do in order to achieve righteousness. And Paul says that that's actually a hindrance from obeying the truth. I find it interesting that, that he uses this word obey to a group of people who are trying to obey something that they think is true. And he says, in your effort to obey the truth, you've actually strayed from the truth. And now you're running a race that's uphill. And maybe, it's, maybe you're running in the sand and there's no shade anywhere and you don't have any water. This is not a leisurely stroll. This is a difficult race. And he says that this persuasion or this idea is not from God. It's not just that it's a bad idea. It's not just that it's a more difficult path to go. It's not from God. It's not the gospel. A couple of Wednesdays back, again, if you missed it, this is online to go back and watch, but we, we spent an evening talking about works-based righteousness and how it's antithetical to the gospel. I would encourage you, if you missed that, to go back and watch it. Because we, we unpack this far more than what we have time to do today. But, but suffice it to say for now that Paul says this is not the gospel. It's not of God. And he's so confident that he says that, that, that you should take no other view. Everybody should agree with Paul on this it, without question. There's no debate. There's no argument to be had here. This is the way that mature Christians think. And, and not only that, but, but whoever it is that's out there peddling this false gospel... That guy just needs to go away, is what Paul is saying. There's a penalty that this person, these Judaizers, are going to bear for peddling a false gospel. There's a penalty for those of us who would buy into a false gospel. And Paul says that that false gospel needs to be silenced. And then he asks the question that if he was still preaching circumcision, why is he being persecuted? And, and, and I don't know how much you know about the Apostle Paul. Paul was a persecutor of the church. 
extraordinaire. If we were living in Paul's day, we, we might fear that he would come in and, and drag people away and off to jail for proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one day, Paul had an experience, he had an encounter with, with Jesus himself, and, and, and he came to faith. And his life was altered from that point forward. The persecutor of the church became the persecuted for the church. In an ironic twist in his story. Paul would go from place to place and he would typically go into the synagogue and just stir the pot. He would say things like this and people would get mad at him. Sometimes he would go into the public square and he would say things like this and people would get mad at him. There was a moment in his life, if you remember, where they drug him outside of the town and they tried to stone him to death. They threw rocks at him until he died, or at least until he was supposed to be dead. I don't know if he was actually dead or not, but, but what did he do? What would you do? You'd probably just move on. That didn't work out there. Move on to the next place. Paul got up and went back into the town. <laughs> Because he had a message to deliver and he says here that that if I'm still preaching the message of circumcision, if I'm still preaching a message that says that you can do something to find favor with God, why am I being persecuted? Because that's an easy message. If I told you today that there's anything that you could do to find favor with God, you would walk out of here and that would be at the top of your list to figure out how to do that thing. We like that message. Our Christian bookstores are filled with books that contain that message. I don't know what, what podcasts or preachers some of you listen to, but those messages are all over out there. The message of try harder to be better, it's out there. And we like the message, try harder to be better. It, it appeals to our flesh because there's something in our minds that we think that we can do. If there is something that we can do, here's why I think that we like it. Because who's in control? I am. If there's something I can do to make God love me more, I want to be in control of that. We oftentimes look at our, our faith as very transactional. Or, or maybe, maybe a buzzword that you've heard lately, we, we look at our faith to be a quid pro quo. God, I'll do for you, but you better do for me. I'll go to church every Sunday. I'll wear a mask. I'll put up with it. I'll vote a certain way. I'll help my neighbor shovel their driveway when the snow's really deep. You know, whatever. Fill in the blank. I'll do these things for you, God, but, but you owe me. That, that, that's, not, that's not the Christian faith, but it's the message that we so easily buy into. And it's the message that the churches in Galatia had quickly bought into after Paul had left them. This is misunderstood freedom. right? Not only is it antithetical, it's the opposite of freedom, but, it, but it's misunderstood. It's a misunderstood freedom to say, I'm in control. I'm in control of my relationship with God. We misunderstand what true freedom is. The writer of the Hebrew, the book, to the letter to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us that there was a guy, Jesus, that had a race. And his race, the race that he ran with joy, not begrudgingly, not even indifferently, but the the race that he ran with joy was a path that took him to the cross, that took him to an excruciating death. A race that took him to a moment before this happened where he was praying to his father and said, Father, is there any other way? Tell me now. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. His race included a race of submitting to the will of his father. Not submitting to his own plans, his own freedom. Not submitting to his best life now, but submitting to the will of the father that took him to do this difficult thing. And in light of that, we're reminded to look to him. Look to Jesus. Look to the one that did the thing that we could and would never do. Look to him. He's the founder, or another way to say that would be that he's the forerunner. He's the one that has gone before us. He's the one that went before us doing what we could and wouldn't do. He did it. He's the founder. He's the perfecter of our faith. And now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. It's a misunderstood freedom to think that freedom is attained any other way than looking to Christ. Verses 13 to 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And here's where we get to the point where we see what authentic faith is. Paul reminds us that we're called to freedom. What a great call that is. Who of us doesn't want to be free? We're called to freedom. But he tells us, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, don't you, your freedom is not for you. The freedom that is given us by Christ is not a freedom that's self-serving. It's not meant to be that. As we've already established, that's the opposite of freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Your freedom is meant to be an outward-facing freedom. Your freedom, like Christ, is meant to work itself out in love for God and love for humanity. Plain and simple. This this part, this is not rocket science. This is not difficult. Difficult to live, not difficult to understand anyway. Our freedom is meant to be an outward-facing freedom that works works itself out through love in service to one another. This is the ethos of the church. Or rather, it should be the ethos of the church. The ethos of the church is not to bring lawsuits against the government when things don't go our way. The ethos of the church is that in our freedom... That there might even be times that that we would lay aside our rights 
rights that have been earned for us, that we might willingly lay aside those rights, not because we're gluttons for punishment, but because we love people. Paul reminds us that the whole law is fulfilled when Jesus said that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And then he reminds us that if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Any social media fanatics out there? What, what do you see every day on social media? A whole lot of biting and devouring, don't we? And I see a lot of people, a lot, a lot of friends, people that I grew up with, people that I know well, who, who profess a faith in Christ yet they bite and devour one another every day. God stepped into human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and he secured for us a freedom that was impossible for us to attain. We were in bondage to sin and powerless to do anything about it and Jesus liberated us. How is it that our country was founded? We liberated ourselves, didn't we? Us Americans. We liberated ourselves and we fought for what we have. This is where where the message of American freedom and, and freedom in Christ diverge. Christ fought for us. We didn't liberate ourselves from anything because we couldn't liberate ourselves from anything. Jesus liberated us. And now Paul tells us that in light of that, because that's true, we now have a freedom that frees us not not to prop up ourselves, not to live for our own selfish ambitions and our own selfish desires. But we have a freedom that now allows us to love people that think differently than we do. Did you know that if you're a Republican, that God has given you a freedom to allow you to love the Democrats? And if you're a Democrat, that God has given you the freedom to love the Republicans. And if you're an independent, God's given you freedom to love everybody, right? We don't have to be mad at each other. Paul calls that biting and devouring one another. And he warns us that as you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Because that's the only place that that can go. If you are biting and devouring one another, the only end to that game is that that you're going to be consumed. It's kind of this idea like live by the sword, die by the sword. That's the only way where that comes to an end. Tim Keller writes that because a fish absorbs oxygen from water and not air, it's free only if it's restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the river, but put on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon live is destroyed. Real freedom, he says, isn't restrictionless. Real freedom is in finding the right restrictions. God has given us again a freedom that says that it's not for you. But that's not restrictive, at least in a bad way. God's given us a freedom that says, go and use your freedom to work itself out in love toward your fellow humans. This is the way that I've designed you to live. It's not a bad thing. It's not a restrictive thing. It's not a punitive thing that says you screwed it up, so now you've got to pay it forward. It's not that at all. Like the fish, it's the right kind of restrictions for which God has designed us. 
Lastly, I want to end just with this idea found in, in Romans chapter 12. Paul spends 11 chapters in the book of Romans making the case for the gospel. Making the case for here's all the things that Christ has done for you that you could and would never do for yourself. 11 chapters. Then he comes to chapter 12 and he says, I appeal to you therefore. In other words, in light of all that Christ has done for you, here's what makes sense. And he says, brothers or brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or depending on your translation, it might say that it's your reasonable act of worship. And the idea is that nothing else makes sense when we buy into the gospel. Nothing else makes sense except to live an outward-facing life in service to Christ and in service to those around us. Nothing else makes sense except that the ethos of the church would be love in light of the gospel. And I hope that makes sense to us. Paul goes on in Romans 12, 2 to say, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to all the, all the biting and devouring that's happening on social media. Right? I read not long ago that, that sometimes we say things on social media because you can't get punched in the face through a screen. Right? We say things online that we would never say to people in person. <laughs> Don't be that. Don't be that. Don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. But he says to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I can tell you that the perfect, acceptable will of God is that that we would love God, that we would love each other, that we would serve one another. And sometimes that means setting aside freedoms and rights that have been purchased for us so that the message of the gospel will be clear, not just in the things that we say, but in the things that we do. And as that message goes out to the world with greater and greater clarity, it's our hope and our prayer that people would see that and they would hear it and they would say, I need to know more about that. And not only that I need to know more about that, but I'm in, I'm all in. And so as we consider today our freedoms, And again, I'm I'm grateful for the freedoms that we have, and I don't take those lightly. Consider Mark 10, 45. It says that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we're thankful for today. We're thankful for the country in which we live. We we sit here today being able to say something that that people in other parts of the world aren't able to say, that, that we have freedoms that we enjoy because of things that other people have done for us. But I pray that it wouldn't be lost on us today what you have done for us and the freedom that you have purchased for us, which is far greater than any person or any government could ever give us. Father, help us to be thankful uh, today and, and every day, but today of all days, to be thankful for what you've done for us, the thing that we could and would never do for ourselves and help us to be people that have lives that are outward facing, that in our freedom, that we would use our freedom, not for self-serving purposes, but to serve others in love so that more people could come to know you. And we ask it in Christ's name, amen.